Hello, I'm Gail. Hello, I'm Catherine. And today we are delighted to bring to you uh, uh, our advocate for women aging, Lydia Denworth. She's a science journalist who contributes regularly to Scientific American, and I just need to show this. She was in the special issue in winter 2020, writing about, is there a female brain? Uh, she contributes regularly to Psychology Today. Her work also appears in the Atlantic, Newsweek, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time, and, and numerous other publications. But today, we want to focus on her book of 2020, which is called, I have to, I have to show this also, Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. And we're especially interested to hear about the value of friendship for women across the ages and as we age. So welcome, Lydia. Hi, it's great to be here with you both. Thank Happy you. Happy to have you. So I, I first heard about your work, Lydia, when I listened to a webinar that you offered through the Transition Network National. Mm -hmm. And I called Gail immediately and said, we have to talk with her. This is the most wonderful work ever. And then uh, I purchased your book and I'm just very enthralled with it. So why don't you we just start though by telling us uh, what is uh, life as a science journalist? <laughs> well, right now we're recording this in the time of the coronavirus pandemic. So life as a science journalist is fairly busy. Uh, there's a lot to do, uh, but uh, generally, it's, I feel really fortunate to get to do this work. I feel like I am telling one of the really important stories in the world, which is science in general. I mean, it is a story, it's, but it's, you know, it's what we know about the world so far. It's a, it's a, there's a beginning, a middle, and then never an end because it's always moving forward. Uh, and um, I feel like it's important. And my job is to both, translate it for the wider world, but also to bring a skeptical eye or to try to be kind of a curator and um, uh, of what's, you know, what's good work out there and uh, what's important and also what's fun. And I, I've, I've really enjoyed also getting to know, I've made friends with quite a lot of scientists, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they're really interesting people doing, and they're very passionate about their work. So that's always Nice, nice people to be with. I can imagine. Well, we're, we're so curious, what prompted you to choose friendship as a topic of a worthy investigation? Well, if you're going to write a book about anything, you really need to be willing to spend a couple of years um, wrestling with the topic. And friendship certainly felt like something that would be interesting, would sustain my interest. Uh, it felt important to me. Uh, so I'm at a sort of transition point in life in my early 50s, where you get into the mid 50s, I guess, where uh, my kids are growing up and out and uh, I'm losing my mother and, you know, things are, it's a transition and a moment, I think, as often is the case in life when we are in transition moment, uh, points where we think about the people in our lives and how we're going to be spending our time and with whom. And uh, so, Maybe I was primed to be particularly interested in friendship, but I think one of the appeals of the subject for me was also that it's something that's relevant to every single person on the globe <laughs> at every point in their lives. Uh, and the other really 
big thing was that it was about five years ago when I first got this idea and I was listening. I was at a conference listening to scientists talk about what they were working on and what they thought was interesting. And this kept coming up, this idea that there was a biology and an evolution to friendship. I mean, this was part of sort of the interest, growing interest in studying social behavior in general. But the idea that friendship in particular would be treated so seriously and had this other aspect to it was really um, fascinated me. I, I felt like we all, we think we know all there is to know about friendship. It's so familiar. It's so sort of something we take for granted. It seemed like maybe there was an opportunity to reveal that there was something new to understand. We all can re relate to the emotional aspect of friendship mm -hmm. and how it adds value to our lives in that way. But you, you talk about how, how it affects us in, in many ways. And, and can you kind of enlighten us about that? <laughs> sure. I, I mean, the headlines from the book are, I'd say that the two really big headlines are one is that, um, that friendship is as important for our health as diet and exercise. And it should be right up there with those two things. It should be something that we are thinking about in that context. Um, and the other piece of it is that for a long time we've 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 appreciated for thousands of years that friendship is pleasurable that it feels important and valuable but we've always thought it was a part of human culture a byproduct really of language and civilization and while there are definitely cultural elements to friendship or layers to friendship it turns out that at its core it's part of our evolutionary story it's and it's not just humans but other species as well so there's an there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends <laughs> there's so, been a survival of the friendliest uh, essentially friendliest. <laughs> <laughs> yes what other um species do we share this with that most obviously, uh, a lot of the non-human primates, so monkeys and apes, like rhesus macaques and baboons, chimpanzees, different, uh, different monkeys and apes have different kinds of societies, so they don't all work exactly the same way, but, but it has been shown uh, in, so the most fundamental work that was sort of most directly relevant to humans was in baboons, where they found that the baboons with the strongest uh, positive bonds lived the longest and had more and healthier babies. And that's about as good as you can do in evolutionary terms, right? Longevity mm -hmm. and reproductive success is what we're all after and getting your genes on into the next generation. And, um, and the thing that was striking was that baboons are a very hierarchical society. They live in troops where, you know, there's a, there's a pecking order. And the scientists who were watching them really thought that that dominance hierarchy probably was the most important factor and what was so striking to them was that these the friendships which they did start to call it among the baboons uh these strong bonds among the baboons was more important um when it came to these these um, out, evolutionary outcomes they were measuring and so of course in humans it looks a little different i mean not everybody has children and things like that and that's fine but the the point of natural selection is that we're we're sort of looking to do things that that you know perpetuate our genes that allow us to live longer and that keep us healthier right and um, and and so it's not just about living a long time but living a happy and healthy life and it turns out that friendship 
does the same thing in humans. Aren't uh, penguins also? Category. Um, You know, I didn't come across research on penguins, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that they're not. I mean, because what is true is that it's a remarkable, it's remarkable how many species show some elements of this kind of social connection um, and this this way of kind of bonding together. Uh, And so, but what the many, many species, other species do spend most of their time with their relatives, with their biological relatives. But what's interesting is that in several species, they've shown that it's the exception that proves the rule kind of, that it does not have to be your relatives to get the benefits, right? That if you don't have, if you're a baboon, say, who lost your relatives to a lion, and you make and you have other strong relationships in your troop, you're good. <laughs> you're gonna be okay. Uh, and um, I hope that's true for the penguins too. I think in the case of the penguins, it's there's a, there's a reverse. Don't the males look after the um, the the eggs, and then yeah, the females go out and hunt. Anyway, um, I'll have to investigate the penguins. <laughs> the, yeah, the the, uh, the interesting thing about friendship to me has always been that that uh, women and men do friendship differently. Yeah. Well, so what's interesting, you're right. And there are there are certainly stereotypes about that. So the way I usually sum it up is that stereotype is that women do friendship face to face, meaning we talk talk, 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 talk <laughs> to each other a lot. Uh, and men do it side by side, meaning that they do things together. They play sports or watch sports or they sit on bar stools next to each other or they engage in projects together. Uh, and there's truth to both of those things. Women are much more likely to um, think of their time with their friends as time of sitting and talking and catching up. Um, but it is also true that uh, a lot of recent research found that the similarities between the way men and women feel about friendship are much greater than the differences, which I think is the kind of intriguing um, part of the story. You know, it's, it's, um, and that men value friendship just as much as women. Maybe they do do it differently. I think culturally, this is a case where culture comes in. Men in our culture, certainly in the West, have not really been always encouraged to develop friendship or, you know, they, they're supposed to be strong and individualistic and not to need to talk about their emotions. Or if they get married, they kind of put all their emotional eggs in that basket. And um, there was a Saturday Night Live skit recently where the the uh, comedian who did the monologue was making a joke about how his father, who I guess was around 70, um, doesn't have friends. He has his his wife's friends, husbands <laughs> to hang out with, you know, um, and I'm sure there's some truth to that being how people do live their lives in some cases, but, but, um, but I, I have three sons and a husband and all of them have very strong friendships that, and, and spend a lot of plenty of time with their friends and talk to their friends about how they feel about things, maybe not the same way I do, but so I'm, I'm sort of uh, interested in, in debunking a little bit the idea that men um, at least are, and this may not be what you were saying, Gail, that they're, that, that, but we, I think culturally we have the idea that they're kind of duds at friendship. And I don't think that's entirely fair. 
<laughs> well, not dad said friendship. <laughs> yeah, but women have a special power. It's true. I mean, we have really appreciated how important friendship is um, in the current cultural moment, and uh, and we know that we appreciate it. We we talk about it, and women do seem to make more of an effort to maintain their friendships outside of marriage. To maintain, you know, to rely on friends for different things. And uh, so we seem to have got the memo, I guess. <laughs> what does it do for us uh, physio physiologically? Physiologically? Yeah, this one of the things I think is so fascinating is that when I said it's as important for our health as diet and exercise, what I'm referring to is the fact that um, if you take loneliness on the one hand and friendship on the other as two sides of this question of social, like basically a measure of how socially integrated and connected you feel, uh, all of those things for good in the case of friendship or for ill in the case of loneliness have been shown to affect your cardiovascular functioning, your immune system. So how resilient or susceptible you are to inflammation or um, viruses quite relevant today. It affects your cognitive um, health, so your risk of dementia, your mental health, your risk of depression, your stress responses, your quality of sleep, and even the rate at which your cells age. So there's a little cap on the end of your cells that gets shorter over time, and it's shorter in lonelier people than it is in people who feel more connected. So they're literally biologically aging faster if they feel less connected. It does this does it make a difference in terms of quality or quantity? It does. Friendship. Quality matters most. Uh, so quantity is not unimportant, but quality matters most. And it and really the biggest. I mean, if you're going to ask me, is there a magic number of friends you have to have? I'm going to say it's one. Actually, the the, the <laughs> step change, the difference between zero and one, is is the greatest difference. You know, but of course. It's better to have more than one friend because you kind of need a bench, I think. Um, but and, and if you have a variety of friends, that gives you other benefits. It obviously exposes you to more viewpoints, and, and that's very important. It, it, and from a health perspective, it does seem to provide some more resilience or more immunity to um, common diseases and things, colds and things like that. Um, but, but what's really interesting is that quality it's clear that quality matters most when it comes to these, these questions of how it, it affects us. And we don't know, by the way, all of the science for exactly how all those things that I listed, how it works. We know some of it. When I won't get into the details because it can get pretty, pretty nerdy, but, um, but, <laughs> but, it, um, but that's kind of where the science is now, is trying to figure out, you know, what's what scientists call the mechanism, like what's happening in the body how does it get under the skin? How can a relationship that exists here outside of the body entirely get inside under the skin and change the way your cells work, the way your genes are expressed? Um, and, but it, and it does. We, we don't know exactly how it does that, but we know that it does. So quality of friendship, is that as, as each person defines it or are there some markers? No, yes, there are some markers. Uh, so... What's interesting is that when one reason why friendship, um, why scientists uh, like evolutionary biologists and they didn't study friendship for a long time was because they had trouble defining it. It felt kind of squishy and, and a little unscholarly to them then, you know. Um, but 
one of the advantages of doing this work in other species is that it allowed them to strip out a lot of the complex variables that come with human life, right? And to sort of get down to what does that strong positive bond have to look like? Uh, and they found that it included three fundamental things. Those bonds were long lasting, they're positive, and they're cooperative. So, and then in humans, an anthropologist went out and sort of looked at friendships across cultures, many, many, many cultures all over the world, and found surprisingly similar, or maybe not surprisingly, found um, strikingly similar themes that friendships made people feel good. Most often they were described as making people feel good and represent, and that friends were there when you needed them, especially in a time of crisis, which is the cooperative piece of, of what's going on in the baboons, say. I mean, really, friendship at fundamentally is about being there for each other when you need, when we need each other. And we get all the benefits, the feeling good, and the rewards in our brains kind of makes us come back for more and wants us, you know, it helps us to develop the um, intimacy in the relationship. And that is so that then when we need that person, they're there for us. Um, so really the, the payoff is meant to be the being there in a crisis. And so for a baboon, that looks like, you know, helping protect you from the predators or helping you find food in the savanna. And in humans, it looks like other things, but it's sort of, it's the figurative lions. Our friends are there to help us. I asked my 30-year-old daughter the other day what friendship means to her. And she said, well, it means they got my back. Yes, there you go. There you right? go. She, she, she said it much more succinctly than I did. <laughs> I have a book for you. And it also right. saves us from spending time in the psychologist chair. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It's um, actually one of, while I was working on my book, um, one of my friends gave me a pair of socks that said, friends are therapists you can drink with. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yes, that's probably true. Have a glass of wine, talk it out, and it feels better. Well, yeah. Are Are you going to continue to dig into this uh, area of friendship, or are you moving on to? Other uh, you know, I'm not sure. For I'm right now. Um, I am doing just doing a lot of journalism. I'm not working on a new book, but a lot of that journalism does kind of. Um, is related to this idea of the importance of our social lives and our, you know, on our mental health and things like that. I'm sort of spinning in, you know, related directions, but we'll see. I, uh, I, I do find it really interesting and I feel like there's still a lot to say and do so mm -hmm. probably. I'm curious, Lydia, when you chose journalism as a career. Oh, all the way back. Um, I've always, I always wanted to be a writer and I was, the, you know, on the newspaper in high school and in college. I started a magazine with um, colleague, with peers in college. And, but I always, I was always interested in journalism and nonfiction and never really, I never wanted to write the great American novel or anything. I just always wanted to do this. The, the real switch for me was the science piece because that only came kind of halfway through my career. And I would not have predicted it because I was not... That was not what I studied or was interested in, um, but I got to it by being interested in things like children's health and um, education. And, and my first book ended up having a, a scientist as one of the protagonists. And I 
I had to suddenly read all this complicated science and then write about it. And I found that I was better at that than I imagined I'd be and that it felt important and interesting. And so I've kind of never looked back uh, and and am and, and doing this now. But so, but the journalism piece, I've been a journalist for 30 years and a science writer for more like 15. Uh-huh. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what else would you like uh, us and our listeners to to understand about friendship? Well, I would like to talk a little bit about this friendship specifically at in when you're over 70 or the yeah, later stages perfect. of life. Um, and, you know, there's there's really good news and there's a little bad news. Um, the good news is that you can make friends at every stage of life, even though some people seem to find it harder in adulthood. I think in the later stages of adulthood though, maybe it gets a little easier because people have a little more time again, at least on that front. Um, if you're not, you know, if you are, um, your family's grown and you have uh, maybe less work to do in a career, uh, it can be easier because time is truly a big piece of friendship. That's just very, it's just a fundamental part of it. Um, but it's also, um, and one of the lovely things is that the epidemiology on this that looks at social relationships and health found that over 65 friends were the most important kind of relationship there was. And they took the place of a spouse and which is great news. If you lose your spouse or you're not married um, and you might be afraid of going into the later decades alone, but actually friends really do seem to be able to be there as a, to sort of fill that space. Um, Very, it works well and it, and it shows up in big epidemiological studies of thousands of people, the friends are powerful. Um, so that is the great news. The other thing I think is interesting is that, you know, we worry a lot about loneliness in older people mm-hmm. and that's a legitimate worry mainly because we know how bad for us loneliness is now. Um, but one of the things that my research or that I discovered is that even if people have smaller social circles when they're older, it's often intentional. I don't know if that's your experience, but it comes from this idea that we, we focus more on the people we actually really like and Mm -hmm. want to be with, Mm -hmm. which speaks Mm -hmm. to that idea of quality mattering most. So maybe people have figured that out intuitively and said, you know, I just don't have time for the people who are demanding and draining and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to hang out with the people I really care about. Um, so I think that's great. And that's something to um, sort of aspire to. The bad news that I alluded to is that some of the research on, on where they followed people over the course of their lives has revealed that the people who are happiest and healthiest, in this case, the study was showing, looking at when you were 80 years old, how happy and healthy were you? And what they found was that um, that what affected that most was the satisfaction you had with your relationships back when you were 50. <laughs> so uh, in the middle of life, which is at a point in time when a lot of people were not necessarily putting all their effort into friendship. They might've been more likely to be putting their effort into careers or raising families or things like that. And, um, and so, you know, there will be damage done if you didn't work on your friendships the whole time, but it's totally recoverable, (laughs) I guess is what I'm trying to say that, you know, um, there's part of the story that says like, don't wait until you're over 65 to really focus on friends. Um, 
If you did, however, the really good news is uh, that, 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 that the people are out there and that there's a lot of benefit to be had. So is that about um, retaining friendships from when you were in your 50s or that you, you have a lot of practice at, at being a good friend and having friends? I think it's the latter. Um, of course, it could be both. And, um, you know, lucky you if you do still have wonderful sustaining relationships over the decades. And um, many people do. And I did say that part of friendship part of being a good friend and the definition of friendship is that it's a long lasting relationship. But what I interpret that as is that it means being a steady, reliable presence in someone's life. It does not mean that you have to have known them for 40 years or 50 yeah. years or, you know, um, and people come in, I mean, people, we lose people, obviously people, people pass away or they move or, you know, that things happen. And, uh, um, I mean, in my mother's case, very sadly, she's got very severe Alzheimer's. And so her friends feel that loss hugely, you know, because they thought they were all going to grow old together. And, you know, um, and that has not been so easy to do with her. Um, and so, but other people can fill that that void. Um, the important thing is that you then have to work a little, though, if those are newer relationships, you have to recognize that it can take some time to develop that intimacy. And so you need to put in the time and you need to sort of be recognizing that, that that's worth prioritizing and that there is a payoff to it. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. find that at different stages of people's lives, their friendships wane and, and uh, grow and, and uh, different types of friendships they form? It does seem that the middle of life uh, when people in theory are busiest is when the, they have the hardest time with friendship. Um, most people there are, I mean, of course, all of this, we haven't really talked about how people's personal inclinations. So some people are shyer or some people are um, very content with just a, a, a sort of quieter social life, interacting with one or two people at a time. And other people have sort of been, making relationships everywhere they went for their whole lives and kind of are the, you know, joiners or throwing parties or, and it's all good <laughs> as long as, um, as long as whatever relationships you have make you feel connected and sustained. Um, it's, and it does seem to be true that people focus more again on friendship um, as they get older. And that's what, so that's great. I guess my message is less for your audience and more for the people who are still in their forties or fifties is don't, you know, don't, don't forget that this is a muscle you need to keep working. Um, and that you will be better off when you're older, if you've thought about it the whole way through. Yeah. Really important. And we, we do have, we do have listeners who are good. Okay. <laughs> and want, certainly want to talk, reach across the generation. Yes, indeed. And reaching across friendships across generations are of course a wonderful thing. I mean, we do often tend to be drawn to people who are like us and age is one of the ways that that's true, partly just because it provides a shortcut. You know, you've been through a lot of the same things you have um, and you tend to have the same kinds of, um, I don't know, issues in your life to deal with now. Um, or, and, uh, but it's, a. Uh, I think it's, I think one of the wonders of adulthood is how the differences in age can kind of melt away and because shared interests and shared worldview and things like that matter a lot. And that you don't, doesn't matter how old you are. Right. Right. For sure. Yes. Yeah. 
Gail, did you want to have, did you want to say no, something? I just wanted to say thank you very much. This was just a wonderful conversation, Lydia. And um, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think that the path you have chosen suits you very well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate so much you're, you're talking with us and um, we'll be delighted to, um, to make your book and other work known through our networks as well. Great. Well, I very much appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. <laughs>